0: When are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn! Network Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Now, here's Will and Welcome to Hopping Mad. I'm Will McLeod.
1: And I'm Arliss Bunny.
0: And today I will be talking about technologies that didn't quite make it and the history around them.
1: And I'll be answering the question, what is blockchain?
0: But first, we have a few stories that we are going to cover here in the top of the show. And let me just say, it's so good to be back.
1: It's really great. I do want to apologize for being the cause of us being off the air for so long. Having been so ill was frustrating, to say the least. And in fact, I will be having surgery in October, so I will be off the air again. Hopefully, we'll be able to record some things in advance so that it won't be radio silence, literally, for such a long time. But I want to start today by celebrating for just a moment because next week is our one-year anniversary. And we're really excited. It's been a really great year for us. And I was amazed. I went back and listened to some of our earlier shows so that I could choose a show for one of the reruns we did. And boy we have definitely gotten better <laughs> over time. <laughs> I mean, I think we have really great people and I was really happy with the people we got in our early interviews and that kind of thing. But we're better at what we do and we want to thank all of you who have contributed to helping us get to that point in terms of the way you've questioned us and the way you've pushed us. We just really, we really appreciate it and we really appreciate appreciate each and every one of you for tuning in and just for being there and asking questions and being involved i guess questioning curious listeners that really it makes an enormous difference to us
0: and what's been really fun and frustrating in the best possible way the good kind of frustrating the wonderful kind of frustrating is all the arguments we've had with listeners who disagree with us on certain points and the discussions that we've had with our audience and with people who listen to us And the way that those disagreements have helped us study things and think about things that we otherwise wouldn't and help us know where we need to go as a show and where we might be wrong. Someone showing you information that tells you that you're wrong isn't someone who's an enemy. That person's your best friend. Because being wrong is a bad thing, especially if you're doing what we're doing. So for everyone who's made sure to keep us on our toes. Over the past year, thank you guys so much. We really appreciate it. It's not just the, the happy, hey, you guys are great comments we like, although those are wonderful to get. It's the, hey, here's what we need to talk about. These are the facts. Those kinds of comments are excellent as well. So we feel like you have helped us be a smarter show and helped us bring better information to people. So thank you to all of you who've been arguing with us as well. We appreciate that.
1: I've spoken in earlier shows, particularly in February, about the fact that the international shipping companies are like a canary in the coal mine, that mm-hmm. they are an economic indicator and that they were in deep trouble, that they were business was down 30%, and both companies like Hanjin and Maersk were having to make some very difficult decisions. Hanjin, this past week declared bankruptcy. They have completely failed. Maersk has managed to pull itself out and is doing better. But Hanjin has not. On the 31st of August, Hanjin filed for bankruptcy in Seoul. It was the seventh largest shipping line by capacity in the world and an estimated 25,000 Hanjin containers used to cross the Pacific on any given day. Hanjin's business was heavily dominated by the shipping of Chinese goods. And other shippers, as I earlier mentioned, like Maersk, have slowly recovered as they've moved global business because their business was spread out across the globe more broadly. But Hanjin was really shipping from China across the Pacific Ocean primarily, and that really hit them harder. Creditors have tried to keep Hanjin afloat by pumping $896 million into the company, but that was far too little for a problem that was far too large. There is and continues to be, even with the failure of Hanjin, a 30% global shipping overcapacity during this ongoing slump in global trade. STX Offshore and Shipbuilding Company filed for receivership in May, and is closing its French shipyard and is laying off about one-third of its total workforce. The fallout from the failure of Hanjin will be reflected in retail stores all over the world. And while pressure is increased on the government of South Korea to quickly process Hanjin through its bankruptcy court systems, that's not actually likely to happen. The government wants Hyundai Merchant Marine to purchase the healthy assets of Hanjin and it has rejected a merger of the two companies. Hyundai has already put itself under what they call a creditor recovery track because it was failing as well, but it is considered to be far healthier than the failed Hanjin and purchasing quality Hanjin assets may very well be to Hyundai's good. Goods sitting in Hanjin containers have come to a stop in ports, train terminals, and truck shipping yards everywhere all over the world. Retailers with prepaid shipments have no access to their goods and no way to have the goods redirected or to get any prepaid money back. Customs processing, freight brokerages, and the like are besieged by stalled Hanjin shipments and by having to make other arrangements for goods that are only now being put into the shipping process. In other words, things that were shipping with Hanjin that have gotten maybe halfway and have stalled out. How do you move that? How do you redirect that? Hanjin vessels are being turned away in ports around the world, including the United States, Canada, Spain, and a growing list of nations in Europe. The fear is that the ships will come into port and the crews will leave because they're not being paid, and then you've got a ship stuck in port, taking up space, taking up docking space. Since ports don't want that problem, and they know that they will not be paid by Hanjin for the docking fees, they are turning these ships away. Well, then you've got the problem of Hanjin crews that are stuck on these ships and they only have three to four weeks of food and water on these ships. So now you've got crews steaming around trying to find a place to dock and not being able to do that. And even if they could get somebody to come out to them, which they of course could with food and water to restock, they have to pay for that in cash because Hanjin isn't going to, has no credit. There's no way for the food to be paid for, unless the crew basically does it themselves. China has begun seizing Hanjin ships in its ports in an effort to redirect goods, which are essentially trapped aboard. In a variety of countries, Hanjin ships are also being seized by the ship owners, who have gone unpaid after leasing the ships to Hanjin, as well as by workers, terminal owners, and fuel bunker suppliers. In short, it's complete chaos. Complicating the matter further, Hanjin is part of a 6 shipping company Alliance formed in May to try to compete more effectively with global leader Maersk. And so the shipping of five other companies are affected as well. This all comes down to Freight brokers estimating that 540,000 containers are expected to experience delays of many months. Container shipping rates have increased from $700 per container prior to the Hanjin failing to over $2,000 a container right now. But that's a momentary sort of rat in the python kind of thing. Rates will continue to fall because there does continue to be overcapacity. Amazon, Walmart, Target, and JCPenney are expected to be hit especially hard as they have a considerable volume in goods that are stranded. But companies like Home Depot have always used a wide variety of carriers, so they don't expect to have the same kinds of problems that a company like Amazon has. Since toy stores do 50% of their year's business in the six weeks before Christmas, the, and this does crack me up, the Toy Shippers Association is expressing what they refer to as deep concern. It, the Toy Shippers Association? Come on. Anyway, Hanjin actually owns very few of their ships. So once the leased ones are released by the courts, eventually, many of those will go back into circulation. And the thing about Hanjin ships was that Hanjin, in their fleet, tended to both own and use new ships. So while the Hanjin ships that are currently owned by that company and leased by that company will likely go back into circulation, older ships will eventually have to fall out of the system. But here's the thing to keep in mind. Just as it takes a long time and a lot of distance to turn around a large vessel at sea, throttling back capacity and then ramping it up again in a later time as global shipping capacity is needed, you know, if we come out of and when we come out of the slump, that's going to be difficult. And again, it's going to take a lot of time because once you have throttled down capacity, throttling it back up is a major production. And I said some time ago that paying attention to global shipping companies was one of the better ways to monitor the health of global trade. Since that time, Maersk has improved and Hanjin has failed, so we should continue to watch. Will?
0: You know, hearing that story about Hanjin, one of the things I'm thinking about is the fact that I'm worried about just regular sailors getting convicted for piracy because they decided not to starve. That's part of the concerns with this. We have this global concern, but think about the guys who are stuck on these ships and just the decisions they're going to have to make to stay alive if they need water. I'm worried about a crew abandoning ship and just letting a ship run aground and abandoning it because they can't get the support they need. I'm worried about these guys, if they decide to take matters into their own hands for their own survival, getting charged with piracy. It's, it's, it's chaos, and that that's, has the potential to hurt people on these ships, communities that are in danger from having a giant shipping company's uh, vessel just run aground somewhere. It's, it's, it's really scary stuff.
1: And I think about the domino effect of, for instance, small manufacturers in... China, who have built high value goods and are shipping them in a container to, you know, customers in the U.S. and suddenly they can't get paid. Either that or small companies that have ordered and they've already paid their money and they can't get their goods to sell to fill in. There is an enormous gap opening up and mm-hmm. companies on either side of, of the Hanjing shipping process are going to be in trouble. And I think that it's not high on my concerns list that Target isn't going to be getting the goods they need, but it is high on my concerns list that small companies will get hit by this because, you know, as a small manufacturer that ships to China, Mm -hmm. for us, because we ship to China, shipping is easy because all those empty containers go back. It's cheaper for me to ship to China than it is for me to ship to California. Mm -hmm. but it is, you know, my brethren who are shipping in the other direction, equally small manufacturers. This is really a bad thing, and I really feel for them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to talk about Nigel Farage in Mississippi, of all places. There's been a movement in right-wing circles, and Hillary Clinton called them the alt-right. And I guess that's a good enough name for this nebulous group of Neo fascists and misogynists and racists and very, very bad people who have been trying to infiltrate and take over the Republican Party for rather a long time. And as much as we talk about how these ideas are core to the Republican Party and they are, there is still a group of people who've been only putting on the clothes of neo fascism to reach out to these voters. It's the dog whistle politics, it's the Southern strategy of Nixon, it's all of that. And those Sort of right-wingers who aren't racist, they just pretend to be, have lost control of their party. And that's why Nigel Farage was in Mississippi. People have been laughing about it. And Rachel Maddow had a great section where she pointed out that the crowd didn't know whether or not to cheer for Brussels. Or whether it was a vegetable and, or a city or, or all that. It, where you had this small group of people who knew where Farage was and what he was about. And then you had this entire group of people who were just vaguely aware that Britain exists. And is that the same thing as England, who had no idea what to do with this weird Englishman who was telling everybody from that stage, yes, America, you too can almost completely destroy your own country with a single vote. But what I think is more important than Farage's visit, and I'll get to who Farage is in a moment, is who... Farage represents to Americans. Maybe you've heard of Breitbart, the right-wing conspiracy house. Well, there's Breitbart UK. I often jokingly refer to it as deadliar.com because uh, <laughs> the guy who's it's named after, who's named Breitbart, he developed a lot of the conspiracy theories that are a problem today. He's one of the people who's been pushing this idea that the Clintons have had people killed, which, if that was true they would be in jail because the whole conspiracy theory relies on Republicans that hate the Clintons being willing to cover up for them. And you hear that all the time when you challenge people on their attacks on Hillary Clinton when you're dealing with conspiracy theories. Well, that's not true. Here's all this information. And if that were true, then the FBI would have to have lied under oath about what Hillary Clinton did. And you get a response like, yeah, they're, they're covering up for her. They're part of the cover up. They're part of this whole conspiracy to protect the Clintons, which is nonsense. That stuff comes out of Breitbart media. That stuff comes out of what Hillary Clinton called the alt-right. Farage's presence there is scary. And if you take a look at Europe and you take a look at at who these people are over there, Farage is part of what's called the United Kingdom Independence Party. I haven't talked a lot about them, but basically what they are is the newest iteration of the far-right in the United Kingdom. You had the British Union of Fascists run by a guy named Mosley, who were arguing that Britain should become a fascist country in the 1930s, who wanted to do the same thing that the Germans were doing, who tried to have a march on London and was shut down rather violently by anti-fascist protesters at the Battle of Cable Street. That developed into various far-right organizations. Most recently, you had the British National Party, the BNP, who were actual out-and-out Nazis that just wore suits. And they would say things like, and this is a quote from Nick Griffin, they would make speeches saying that the Marxists, the free trade capitalists and organized Jewry have declared war on the white man, not just in Britain, but in every country on this planet. That's the sort of thing they would say in public. And they were actually able to win some seats in the European parliament from the United Kingdom. They were actually able to win a couple of local council elections and The British conservatives tried to tamp down on that, and the Labour Party and everyone who just hated these Nazis were able to run them out of power. And then that shifted from the ineffectual politics of being honest about your fascism to the sort of, well, we're not really racist variety of fascism that you see in the United Kingdom Independence Party. They are the people who are responsible for pushing for Brexit. They are the people who helped it happen. And they have allies here in the United States who would like to build a fascist society here. They want to build a society based on removing health care from people because the sickly are of no value to the country in their view. That if you remember in 2012, people chanting, let them die, when people were asked about Obamacare, it's the same group of people. They have actual Nazi ideology. They have views that are about letting sick people die, denying citizenship or citizenship rights based on race or sexual orientation or religion. They have a view that is actually fascist. And I've been very critical of people for a long time for throwing around that word fascism in a way that robs it of its meaning. But what we are seeing when we see Nigel Farage on a stage in Mississippi is the actual rise of fascism in the United States. This must be fought, and it's very serious. Coming up, I will be talking about something a bit lighter, about the history of various technologies that didn't quite make it here on Hopping Matters. progresses? I think most of our listeners probably do too. We think of technology and future development as something that will save us. We, we look to our scientists, our engineers, our thinkers, our creators as people who will help the human species sustain itself in the future. Whether it's wind farms, wave farms, solar energy, or ways to take carbon out of the atmosphere, we are looking to technology to bring down our carbon emissions and halt or maybe even reverse global warming. And there's been Two world records broken on that front recently, Scotland, one of the rainiest and windiest countries in the world, and Costa Rica, one of the sunniest, have both recently powered themselves entirely by renewable energy. Scotland was the first country to break that record and to have a full day powered by green energy. Costa Rica has been able to power themselves for two whole weeks entirely based on renewable production on solar and wind. Technology is awesome. But one of the things I'm enamored of is technologies that didn't quite make it. Ideas that were ahead of their time or, or couldn't work for various reasons. Our history is full of ideas far ahead of their time or ideas that just didn't cut it. Now, we mentioned Farage and Europe and Brexit. So since I've been start talking about Scotland, let's start there. Uh, the Scots during the age of European empires were really annoying to other European societies. Before 1707, they were an independent country that answered to the throne in London, that answered to the Stuart Kings. And as a result, the Scots and English were best of friends, and despite occasional differences, uh, and because of that relationship with the Union of the Crowns, Scotland was not only considered a tough not to crack in its own right with what Prussian and Swedish kings called the finest infantry on the planet, but they had the protection of England, whose fleets were a wall of wood and cannon, protecting the the British Isles from invasion. And they also had a long-term relationship with France. So they were a nation that nobody really wanted to go to war with because nobody really knew who would come to their aid, and also it really just wasn't worth it. So where other nations were conquering and planting flags the scots were going without permission the merchants of scotland were interlopers and hated by the imperialists in europe who desired monopolistic control over trade but they weren't a big enough a problem for anyone to actually do anything about the uh- french had a saying Rats, lice, and scotsmen You find them everywhere. Scottish (laughs) merchants traded throughout North and South America using whatever advantage they could to prevent violence, whether it was pretending to be Catholics with forged documents from the papacy giving them special permission to trade in parts of New Spain, or whether using their relationships with both England and France as an excuse to trade throughout North America in markets that were supposed to be closed. The Scots really were everywhere. They weren't liked because the imperial powers didn't want them there. They just couldn't really do anything about it. So the Scots made alliances with the First Nations, the Native Americans. They didn't just make allies. They married them. Scots, traders, and merchants didn't settle in the New World as colonists. They married into local tribes and used tribal communities as their base of economic operations. And that makes sense. Having dealt with the tribal clan communities out in the highlands, they understood dealing with societies that had vastly diverging rules and structures. Scottish traders necessarily had a knack for languages, because Scotland spoke multiple languages. There were multiple dialects of Gaelic. There was an insular Celtic language similar to Welsh, English, of course. There there was Scots. There was medieval Doric, which was the language of jurisprudence and the law. And so having come up in a country which had at the very least five different languages spoken in various contexts and parts of the country, they were able to learn the languages of the First Nations. The more languages you know, the easier it is to pick up new ones. And despite the fact that they had this unusual and protected status and that they were very good at, at, at trading with people all around the world, and despite the fact that as a peaceful nation who spoke softly and had three massive sticks backing them up, being the Scottish, English and French militaries, the, the traders, engineers, financiers and, and business folks wanted something more. Scotland was in the midst of the industrial revolution and they were developing the science of infrastructure. It was a wet, cold, and mountainous nation that was building some of the first major roads and bridges to connect spaces once thought impossible to reach. The the group of financiers were developing the ideas of central banks and a group of those thinkers created the Bank of England and they wanted to do the same for Scotland. The infrastructure builders, explorers, merchants and financiers came together to embark on a new enterprise. There were ships being lost trying to reach Asia or traversing the Western American coast around Tierra del Fuego. Those ships being lost could be saved, and saved easily. They just needed to build infrastructure across a tiny strip of land in Panama. And to do that, they wanted to build a colony. They set out on the Darien experiment and failed. It was impossible, but they didn't know that at the time. The Traders relied on native technology for survival that they learned from the First Nations, so they had no experience setting up new communities of their own. They expected to be able to have exactly the same relationship with peoples who lived in Panama, but those peoples have been at war with the Spaniards for nearly 200 years in an apocalyptic conflict for the right to exist. They expected to deal with Colder climates that they'd be dealing with in North America, and they brought wool clothing with them. They had no concept of the dangers of yellow fever, of malaria, of other tropical diseases, and that combination that meant that folks were dying from heat exhaustion, dysentery, disease, and war with a group of natives that didn't want anything to do with them. And even if none of that had been a problem, Panama was still far too mountainous to build infrastructure across at the time. Scotland's great bridges and canals through mountain areas wouldn't come into existence until the 1820s. And when Scots were setting out to colonize Panama, it was the 1690s. The colony failed. Almost everyone died. The European empires that saw the Scots as interlopers did nothing to help, even refusing ships of refugees the rights to land at, at English ports in the Bahamas. And the Bank of Scotland folded. And when it folded, it took 60% of Scotland's GDP with it. English financiers bought the country in a cart headed north with what was called the equivalent, the bribe to be paid to the Scottish Parliament to secure their votes on the Treaty of Union. But the idea of connecting East and West by creating infrastructure across Panama, that happened. We have the Panama Canal today, and the history of its construction is pretty brutal. Around 20,000 people died building it because back then we didn't believe in things like workers' rights or safety standards. But that's just one story of a technology that was way before its time. One of my other favorites comes from the 1930s. At that time, the U.S. was on the very cutting edge of technology. We invented the airplane, and our fighter aircraft were better than anyone else on the planet, hands down, mostly because of heavier weapons and thicker armor and better engines. People were building airplanes out of wood and paper while we were building them out of metal. And we were developing a technology at the time that sounds magical even today. In the 1930s, the U.S. Navy built two flying aircraft carriers. The USS Akron and USS Macon were airships. Together, they're the largest helium-filled aircraft ever built. They were each a hair shorter than the Hindenburg, so as ships, they were roughly the size of the Titanic. And they flew. You can see a picture of the Macon in 1933 over Manhattan if you go to imhoppingmad.com. The airships were really cutting-edge technology. Pilots would fly underneath them, and the planes would hook on to what was called a trapeze, and this docking claw would grab onto them and lift them into an internal hangar. At that time, aircraft had two jobs, scouting to find the enemy and shooting down enemy scouts. In sea combat, uh, battleships had guns that could shoot over the horizon. They could shoot things they couldn't see, and so aircraft were becoming the eyes of the fleet battleships would have a seaplane or two, and the idea of developing the big deck carriers was in its infancy. So the Akron and Macon were designed to be faster than surface ships. They're faster even than modern aircraft carriers. And at the time, being that big and that high in the air meant that your only weakness was enemy fighters. And since as an aircraft carrier, you were filled with your own fighters. That wasn't much a concern. You were immune from the enemy fleet. You could find where they were. You could help your fleet shoot at them. You could find the enemy faster. You had more fighters than they did because a mothership was carrying them. And those motherships are so high in the air that the big deck guns can't shoot them. Technology was fantastic. Even thinking about a flying aircraft carrier today conjures up images of space-age technology. But though they were immune to deck guns... What our airships weren't immune to was storms. Both the Macon and Akron were lost in storms. The Akron off the coast of New England. And in that accident, only three people survived. The Admiral in charge of the Navy's airship program was on board, as was most of his staff, and they all died. The Akron lost altitude in a storm. The captain ordered the ship to pull up, pointing its nose to the sky. They ordered the engines to maximum power and hoped the plane could push itself skyward, but the wind was too strong, and the engines didn't have the power, and like a helium-filled balloon under a powerful fan, the Akron was pushed into the Atlantic Ocean, and the heavy seas ripped the ship to pieces. The crew wasn't equipped with life preservers. The Macon met a similar fate off the coast of Big Sur in California, but the crew was equipped with life preservers, and almost all of them survived. And today, the USS Macon's wreck is an attraction for divers. You can still see the painted yellow wings of its aircraft bearing the roundel of U.S. military aircraft at the time. After two disasters and many deaths, the U.S. canceled the airship program. But we learned about in-flight refueling technology from it. We were able to develop the technology that we use today to keep airplanes flying. And maybe like Panama, the Macon and the Akron were just ahead of their time. Maybe airships were more powerful engines with stronger lightweight composites with shells of plastic or Kevlar are on the way, and engineers have dreamed those up. With jet engines, they'd be nearly as fast as airplanes. They could be flying hospitals that could land at disaster sites. With solar cells and electric engines, they could fly without needing fuel at all, though they'd be slower. So long as it's day, it's always sunny above the clouds. It might be sustainable, or it might not. They'll never transport heavy cargo. For every heavy item you bring on board, you need a greater amount of helium to make the aircraft lighter than air and capable of flying. So perhaps there's no way to give these aircraft the power they need to deal with storms or the strength they need. We won't know until it gets here. And the story about that that I like, well, there are two of them. The first is the Boeing 747. When we built that, it was called a dinosaur People were expecting supersonic air travel to be the main way that people got from coast to coast in the United States. Boeing was busy building their own supersonic airliner, and we all know about the Concorde. But we also know that the sonic booms created by supersonic flight shatter windows. So supersonic aircraft were banned in the United States. They were they were doomed to only fly across the Atlantic and. Arliss, did you actually get to fly on the Concorde at one point? Yeah, I did. Tell me about that.
1: Well, it's it was surprisingly cramped. The Concorde was small in comparison to something like a 747 or even 727. And I was amazed that the lack of... There was more than, for instance, the, in coach seating, but not much more. The advantage, of course, was that you weren't on it for very long. So <laughs> it was bearable, expensive, but bearable, and really, really fast, which was awesome.
0: Yeah, and so for, for things like the Concorde, it, it was awkward. It didn't quite work out as a technology. And when one of them crashed and a lot of very rich people died, it sort of spelled the end of the program. The 747 was being built at the same time. And again, it was called a dinosaur. It was designed to be relegated to cargo use only because that's what Boeing thought it would end up as, It's just an outdated cargo plane. But today, the 747 is Air Force One, and the updated versions of it are still some of the most advanced aircraft in the sky. So we don't know what's going to work until we try it. We don't know what's going to get here as far as future technology until it actually arrives. Another great example of that comes from Apple. It's the original PDA, the Apple Newton, which they started developing in the 1980s. It was 1987 when they tried to build the first sort of handheld computer. The Apple Newton message pad is what they were calling it. And it came out in 1993. It was the predecessor to the iPod, predecessor to all of our smartphones. And it didn't work. Apple tried to develop this technology, but they didn't quite have the power they needed. They didn't quite have the infrastructure that was needed. The reason that smartphones are so valuable today is because we have the infrastructure of the internet. There's something for that phone to connect to. For just having a a digital assistant, there's not much more that can do for you than a notepad. But when you can send email, when you can watch videos, when you can listen to music, when all that other technology is developed... It works So Apple came out with this personal digital assistant that was way ahead of its time, that allowed you to do so much, and they were forced to cancel it in 1998. We don't know what's going to work until it gets here. And we do know that after building all of the foundational work and doing all of the innovation that allowed for PDAs and, and smartphones, we now have iPhones, we now have Android. We now have iPods and iPads and all this fantastic technology. Uh, And there are other examples of technologies that we might see, Hyperloop, uh, things like that that may or may not be a wave of the future. And it's exciting to think about what might be. But the thing we need to remember is things like the Akron and the Macon. Things like the idea of the Panama Canal hundreds of years before its time. Things like the Apple-Newton. And the 747. We don't know what's going to work, but it's interesting to look at things that are arriving and to wonder about what they can do and what they might be. And to talk about that more, our list is going to cover blockchain coming up right here on Hobby Math.
1: When I mentioned on Twitter earlier this week that I was going to talk about blockchain, I received a nearly immediate response from Scottish politician and a former and hopefully future guest on our show, Math Campbell. Math and I went back and forth for a bit and I suddenly realized that I needed to do a more thorough job. It is absolutely the norm that folks don't know the difference between the work that money does in an economy and the work that's done by a commodity. For instance, Bitcoin is a commodity, and the pound sterling is money. So next week, I'll be talking in much more detail about why Bitcoin and its ilk are not money, and why they still have a role in commerce and the increasing digital use of a sovereign currency. This week, though, I need to start by talking to you a little bit about how my mind works, because it will help you make sense of me and of what I'm about to say about blockchain a little bit better. I'm a particles to molecules to carrot kind of rabbit. I need to understand things from the very most basic level. In college at, of course, SBUNY, and those of you in New York who will understand that, I took BASIC, FORTRAN, and PASCAL. I struggled, and I kept asking the same question over and over. How does this really work as I'm staring at the punch cards, the boxes of punch cards that I used to have to carry around to run these programs? But I kept asking, how does this work? Ultimately, I discovered machine code. And once I could understand that, for instance, electrons move in a certain way with AND and OR gates and that sort of thing through a 65C816 chip, then everything else fell into place. Higher-level assembler languages made sense once I understood machine code, once I understood 1s and zeros. For me, once I understood how to talk to the chip then at that point, I could begin to trust assembler languages. All of this is a way of saying that most people aren't like me. Most of you are more trusting, and most of you are likely to be more sane as a result. It explains why I got interested in physics, and it explains the way I understand accounting and the way I understand modern monetary theory, MMT. Most people and small businesses that manage their checkbook and accounting via computer use something like QuickBooks. QuickBooks is the accounting equivalent of a higher-level assembly language for a computer. It's doing a massive amount of work for you behind the scenes to make your workflow faster, easier, and less error-prone. Because I'm me, I don't use anything like QuickBooks for my company. I use a high-powered, hardcore, full-up, double-entry accounting package called Account Edge from the good people at acclivity, Account Edge allows me to get way down into the granular guts of the accounting package. This, for me, is like accounting comfort food, all of which is a very long way of saying that I view the rise of blockchain systems with great, great skepticism. I don't trust them yet, and it's likely that I will be among the last to do so. This, however, does not mean that others should be held back by my concerns. Most simply, Blockchain is a distributed, ever-growing database system. Blockchain database entries cannot be changed once they're entered, and cryptographic as well as other types of deep security protocols are designed into the structure from the very first stages of planning. Each block in a blockchain contains one or more transactions. The result of any executables, if applicable, for instance, get this result from the previous block and subtract it from the balance in this block, A link to the previous block is called the hash, and one of those is in every block of the blockchain, and there's a timestamp. The anonymous users of Bitcoin receive credits for taking time to verify blocks. This is called a proof-of-work system. Different blocks can either be heavily or lightly verified, and the amount of computing power, a.k.a. hash power, which has been directed toward verifying any given block is the measure of the proof that that block is legitimate and correct. Lightly verified blocks can therefore be attacked and disrupted by either a single or a relatively small band of determined users. Bitcoin was first, and blockchain in fact, was first implemented in 2009 with Bitcoin Core, which was originally called Bitcoin QT. In the case of Bitcoin, blockchain structure provides a public ledger which is managed collectively by its user community. The Bitcoin crypto ledger is permissionless meaning that all users can create new entries, verify entries of others, and create a new block or group of entries. Bitcoin was developed by someone, male, female, a group we don't quite know, calling itself Satoshi Nakamoto. Satoshi Nakamoto remained involved from the launch in 2009 through April of 2011, at which time he, she, it posted the message, I have moved on to other things, and handed over the complete source code and network key to Gavin Anderson. The 1 million Bitcoin wallet, theoretically currently valued at $520 million U.S. in the Satoshi Nakamoto digital wallet, remains completely untouched. Interestingly, by taking himself, herself, itself, out of the equation, Nakamoto has become significantly less vulnerable to official as well as criminal interference. But it's problematic because there's no reasonable way to make decisions when a single decision is necessary to settle a group problem. For instance, a conflict between two Bitcoin-compatible programs with varying advantages and disadvantages upon which the community cannot reach consensus. Nakamoto used to step in on those kinds of things. He isn't there anymore. Therefore, those kinds of problems continue to exist. Another disadvantage is that the Bitcoin blockchain cannot really scale up. Many people have tried. People have looked at the code. They can't figure out how to scale it up. Bitcoin processes about seven transactions a second. Seven. Visa processes 24,000 transactions a second. The biggest disadvantage is the basic nature of Bitcoin. It is leaderless and has no central bank regulatory structure. In other words, it's mob rule. And mobs can be positive, but they can also be negative. And in that way, Bitcoin will always have a structure that is problematic. Beginning in 2014, the term blockchain 2.0 is used to describe the distributed blockchain database field. In other words, a whole field of developing this kind of structure, this kind of computing structure has developed, and they call it blockchain 2.0. Blockchain is not, by definition, permissionless. Bitcoin is, but blockchain is not different models will be appropriate to different applications. Credentialed systems will, for instance, be developed by banks and other industries. Since early blockchain systems were permissionless, there are Bitcoin bros who insist that credentialed blockchain systems cannot be called blockchain. But that's really just naive and frankly a little sad. Systems which are similar to blockchain but allow for revisions to be made seem to be gravitating to the term distributed ledger technology, but that hasn't really settled yet. However, if you see it, you'll know what I'm talking about. Examples of uses for blockchain other than something like Bitcoin are invoices that pay for themselves when shipments arrive. They call that a smart contract. Or another version of a smart contract would be share certificates, which pay a dividend when profits reach a designated level. Blockchain can also be used for royalty collection and management for copyrights of music, tracking high-value parts as they move through a supply chain, tracking diamonds from mine to retail sale, peer-to-peer crowdfunding, decentralized messaging, distributed cloud storage, insurance for the sharing-based community. In its most recent round of DARPA solicitations for proposal, DARPA has indicated that it's interested in a decentralized messaging system based upon private blockchain for use by the DOD. And the reason that I'm talking about this right now is that a new consortium of banks, UBS, Deutsche Bank, Santander, Bank of New York, Mellon, and ICAP, are investing in the development of a private blockchain-based digital currency. They're calling it the utility settlement coin for use and settlement of back office operations. They're emphasizing this is absolutely not a new cryptocurrency. It will allow for the participating banks to pay for the purchase of securities, bonds, and equities without having to wait for the actual cash to clear, thereby resolving the delivery versus payment delay that's always existed. This is especially critical as the pace of cross-border settlements and cross-border investing continues to increase dramatically. All banks, exchanges, and clearinghouses carry the overhead of their own complete sets of data, and all of that data is duplicated in at least one other place because there's a seller and a buyer for every transaction duplication is expensive. Participants do not all work at the same pace, so delays are introduced which ripple through the entire system. A shared golden ledger would make an enormous amount of difference and, by the way, put a lot of people out of work. The banks expect to put this into place by 2018? I think that's probably a little ambitious, but we shall see what we shall see. This system, the system that the banks are proposing, is called proof of stake. And that means instead of measuring the amount of computing power, which verifies a block, as is done in Bitcoin, proof of stake measures the amount of digital currency which agrees with the current stake. The owners of the digital currency have a direct stake in the veracity and the success of the blockchain which tracks it. The stake blockchain database is distributed amongst users with varying degrees of interest and investment in the proper functioning of the system. In Bitcoin, a block which has been verified by only a tiny percentage of computing power of the overall body of anonymous users can be disrupted. Because in a proof-of-stake system, users have identities. Attacks on any specific transaction can be blocked or tracked. They think, therefore, they will be able to run at Visa transaction rates and more. I think that's probably asking a bit much of existing technology. There are technological hurdles. And speed of the integration of the overhead and protocols is a bigger problem than speed of processing of individual transactions. This is because there's a double spend issue when you start talking about money. In order to make sure, for instance, that one transaction has not been doubled and money hasn't been spent twice, one transaction has to be compared to every other transaction and that creates a bottleneck. It's called, and this problem has been around for about 40 years in computing, The Byzantine General's Problem. Reliable computer systems, and this is, by the way, a quote from a paper called The Byzantine General's Problem by Leslie Lamport, Robert Shostak, and Marshall Pease of SRI International in April of 1980. This problem is that old. Reliable computer systems must handle malfunctioning components that can give conflicting information to different parts of the system. That situation can be expressed abstractly in terms of a group of generals of the Byzantine army camped with their troops around an enemy city. Communicating only by messenger, the generals must agree on a common battle plan. However, one or more of them may be traitors who will try to confuse the others. The problem is to find an algorithm to ensure that the loyal generals will reach agreement. It is shown that using only oral messages, the problem is solvable if and only if more than two-thirds of the generals are loyal. So a single trader can confound two loyal generals. With unforgeable written messages, the problem is solvable for any number of generals and possible traders, except that no one has anywhere, no one anywhere has come close to a way of solving that problem yet. So they thought it was solvable, but they hadn't solved it. And in fact, it's still not solved today. Blockchain is only a partial solution. The only variables available in blockchain are dwell time, block size, and the degree of veracity guarantee. The bottleneck in the proof-of-work system is that the distributed crypto ledger still operates based upon double-entry accounting. In other words, the bottleneck in Bitcoin, which is a proof-of-work system, is that the distributed crypto ledger still operates based upon double-entry accounting and it takes time to verify both sides of the transaction and ensure that it's unique. The bottleneck in proof-of-stake, this banking system, is that in order to be certain that there's no purposeful double-spend or error transaction, Every transaction must pass through a single consensus process. For example, and this is a great, this was the funniest thing I read on this subject. It was from Login Log Out. It's called The Saddest Moment by James Mickens of the Distributed System Group at Microsoft in Redmond. And we'll put a link to the whole article. It's a short article, but well worth reading up on our site at imhoppingmad.com. But this is how he summarized it. For example, suppose that I'm at work. And I want to go to lunch with some of my coworkers. Here's what that experience would look like if it resembled a Byzantine fault-tolerant protocol. James, I announced my desire to go to lunch. Brian, I verify that I heard that you want to go to lunch. Rich, I also verify that I heard that you want to go to lunch. Chris, you do not want to go to lunch. James, oh no, let me tell you again that I want to go to lunch. Chris, you do not want to go to lunch. Brian, Chris is faulty. Chris, Chris is not faulty. Rich, I verify that Brian says that Chris is faulty. Brian, I verify my verification of my claim that Rich claims that I know Chris. James, I am so hungry. Chris, you are not hungry. Rich, I declare Chris to be faulty. Chris, I declare Rich to be faulty. James, I declare James to be slipping into a diabetic coma rich. I have already left for the cafeteria. Unquote. Blockchain technology will (laughs) certainly have a place in the world, but the chances of it taking over the role of banking and currency is limited. The Byzantine bottleneck is not solvable given the state of technology today. Perhaps AI will be useful here. Regardless, I personally don't ever see myself banking with a leaderless, mob rule-based system like Bitcoin.
0: I think that's a really great crystallization of both the problems and the strengths. I mean, the whole point of Bitcoin is not to have central control and to be another option for folks who don't want to bank with central technology. And like I discussed in my section, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens as this technology develops. Will someone be able to innovate some solution around that Byzantine bottleneck? Will someone be able to develop technology that allows blockchain to operate more than seven times a second. Those are the questions that need to be asked. And there are other aspects about this as well, when it's not just banking. Blockchain offers opportunities for control of information to various people. But as you've outlined, all of those strengths face some pretty strong challenges as well. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens as things move forward with stuff like blockchain and crypto technologies that are going to come out that we haven't even imagined yet. Yeah. well thanks for listening to hopping mad folks we're so excited to finally be back and we're looking forward to our year anniversary next week yay you can find us on twitter you can find us on itunes you can find us on google play and on our website i'm hoppingmad.com
1: carrots to you and yours next up is david waldman k grow in the morning here on netroots radio Control. The phone, TV, and the news of the world got in the house like a pigeon from hell. Crossing in our eyes and descended like flies. Put us back on the train.